0: Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And I invite you to open up your Bibles to Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. Matthew 2, verses 1 to 12. Uh, We've spent the last two Sundays in Matthew 1. Two Sundays ago, we looked at the the very first passage in the New Testament, uh, the genealogy of Jesus from Matthew 1, 1 to 117. Then last Sunday, we looked at the second half of Matthew chapter 1, which is Matthew's telling of the, uh, the Christmas story, and today we look at a story that is a true story, and it's unique to Matthew's gospel. It's the true story of the wise men, the, the magi who came from the east to visit the Christ child, to worship him, to fall down before him, worship him, and, and to give him gifts, and and as I read the text in just a moment, I want to encourage you to do a couple of things. I want to encourage you to listen, listen well, listen well to to the details that our passage actually gives us, and listen well to the details that are not given, okay? Now, I mean, I always want you to listen well, but but I'm, I'm making that emphasis today because I'll give you a little hint. We don't know as much about the wise men in this story as the Christmas carols think we do. Christmas carols think we know a lot more about them than what we actually do. So listen for that. Listen for what details we find and what we don't find. But also pay attention to the different characters in the story. And pay attention especially to, to their response. To their, their, the various responses To the news of the birth of the king of the Jews. So with that said and with your your ears ready to listen, hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 to 12. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem Are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. It's given to us in love for our good. And so today what we're going to do is just walk through the text together. And so let's begin in verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. And as I said earlier, okay, we, we should pay attention to the details. And we should always do that whenever we read scripture, whenever we're listening to a sermon. We should always be listening well, keeping our eyes um, on our Bibles and seeing that what the preacher says matches up to what the text says. We should always be listening well. But especially today, I want us to listen well. I want you to notice first This takes place after Jesus' birth. So right from the beginning, you know what that means? That the the Christmas carols and the nativity scenes and the the Christmas cards that that depict uh, the wise men gathered around the manger with the shepherds and with the cows and with the newborn baby Jesus, that's not what the text says. This, This is happening later. That these wise men, they show up at least days later, if not weeks, months, or even up to a year later. These men have to travel a great distance, but I don't get ahead of myself. But, but, but that's, this is after Jesus' birth, at least days, if not weeks, months. Second, did you notice we're not told how many wise men there are? You say, no, no, Richard, I know that song. There's three of them. There's three, Richard, I know that. And I know you know the song. I know we've all sung, we three kings of Orient are bearing gifts we traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder star. I love that Christmas carol. I think we might even sing it this next week, okay? It's a great Christmas carol. But it assumes that there are three wise men, most likely because the text says that they gave three gifts. But you all know that all we know is that there's more than one. There are wise men. but There may just be two who give three gifts. Or there may be ten. Or there may be a hundred. A hundred can give three gifts as easily as two can give three gifts. I mean, even in, in later centuries, the, the, the three wise men were even given names. But That's not what the text says. So look again at verse 1. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Notice, there, there's a king in this text. In fact, there are two kings in this text. There's Herod the king, and there's Jesus the king, the king of the Jews. But guess who, is not, who are not kings in the text? The wise men. The wise men are not kings. The text says that they are wise men. I think our Christmas carols have called them kings because they appear to be wealthy or connected to wealth. They're they're taking this incredibly long journey, this expensive journey. They bring with them expensive treasures, expensive gifts to give to the Christ child. But these men were wise men. The, The Greek word translated wise men is magoi or magi. These magi are wise men. They were scholars, philosophers, scientists of antiquity. You can think of them as a sort of cross between astronomers and astrologers, scientists, scholars. Fourth, these wise men came, came from somewhere in the East. We're not told where, other than they're from the East. And the East could be Arabia, Persia, Babylon. They were from the east of Israel. And they came from the east to Jerusalem. Well, why? Why would they embark on this long, dangerous, expensive, you know, risky, costly journey? Well, look again at verses one and two. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born, king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So that they came from the east all the way to Jerusalem looking for he who has been born king of the Jews. He's been born king of the Jews. So look at that text and notice they're not looking for a baby boy who would one day be crowned king of the Jews. They're looking for a baby boy who was already the king at the time of his birth. See, they're looking for Jesus. They're looking for Jesus Christ, the son of David, the long awaited king of the Jews in the the lineage of David. Looking for he who is the fulfillment of that great promise we've been talking about for the past two weeks from 2 Samuel chapter 7, the long awaited king in the line of David. Okay, but, but why? Why were they, these pagan scholars from Arabia or Persia or Babylon, Why were they looking for Jesus? Why were they looking to bring him gifts? Why were they looking to worship him? I mean, in many ways, that's the point of the passage. Why were they looking for him? We look at verse two. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, there's much debate about this star that the wise man saw. And I think it's important to remember that for these wise men in the east who who did study the sky, the, the, the sky was somewhat simple, okay? The sky was made up of the sun and the moon and then the stars. Kind of everything else was essentially the stars. So almost anything out of the ordinary that was not the sun or the moon could be classified as a star, So some speculate that this star was Jupiter, the the king planet, and so that it showed up in an unusual place or has some unusual movements or orbits or whatever that, that, that seemed to indicate, okay, there's something happening. A king has been born. Others speculate perhaps it was some rare time whenever Jupiter and Saturn were really close together, and so it made a, a unique shape in the sky. It appeared to have a, a unique movement of those two planets, and they're aligned from the, wi- uh, the wise men's vantage point, and so it appears to, to communicate there's a king has been born. Others even suggest maybe it was a, a meteor or a comet. These are all theories. No doubt there are other theories. But here's what we know from the text. What we know is that God calls some phenomenon in nature to happen to arrest the attention of the wise men and to stir their hearts to set it on a long journey to find Jesus. Put another way, what we know is that God was sovereignly behind this. Okay, well, Richard, okay, but why would spotting a star lead to this journey of hundreds, if not thousands of miles? Well, that's a good question, and I think we have to say that God led them to see and to follow the star. God stirred them and led them to seek and to eventually find the Christ child, but but with that said, it's possible that they were somewhat familiar with the Old Testament, somewhat familiar with the, the promises that are found in the Old Testament. This would be especially likely if they were from Babylon. I mean, if, do you remember from the genealogy at the beginning of Matthew 1, the, the outline that Matthew gives us of the Old Testament history? He goes from Abraham to David, from King David to the exile in Babylon, from the exile in Babylon to the Christ child. So if the wise men were originally from Babylon, then some parts of the Old Testament story could have been known by them because the people of God had been exiled among them. Specifically, Babylon was the city to which Daniel and his friends had been taken that you can, after the fall of Jerusalem, you can read about that in Daniel 1, and and you see that Daniel was educated among the wise men of Babylon, and then in in Daniel chapter 2, he was actually promoted over all the wise men, over all the magi. In Babylon and so it's possible they learned about some of the promises in the Old Testament from Daniel you may remember that, that in Daniel chapter 7 verses 13 and 14 he had a vision of one of these incredible promises and prophecies himself in Daniel 7 we read I saw in the night visions and behold with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory in a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You see, here, there's a promise of a king and a kingdom. But it's not just any king, not just any kingdom. This is a dominion and glory and a kingdom for people from all peoples, all nations, all languages. It's an everlasting kingdom. And then Daniel would have also known about Balaam's prophecy, his oracle from Numbers 24, which linked the birth of a king in Judah with a star. In Numbers 24, verse 17, we read, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. And a scepter, a king's scepter, a scepter shall rise out of Israel. So again, a promise of a king and a kingdom linked with with a star. And perhaps all of this became part of the the oral tradition of these wise men, these magi from the east. A new star signaling a new king and a new kingdom. Therefore, they saw the star, they saw the sign in the sky, and they headed to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And of course, right, that you, would, you would, of course, head to Jerusalem, right, to find one born, the king of the Jews. Right, you go to Israel, you'd go to Jerusalem, because that's where a king would be. Because the king would be in a palace, and that's where the palaces are, in Jerusalem. So they went there, and they found a king, but the first king they found is not the king they wanted to find. The first king they found is the old king, King Herod. We see in verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, when he heard that they were coming to Jerusalem, these wise men, these magi who were asking about one born king of the Jews, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Now, so whenever we read that the texts say that Herod was troubled, he was disturbed. I think it's important for you to understand that Herod merely being troubled or merely being disturbed, is one of the greater understatements in the whole Bible. Okay, Herod's not the kind of guy who was just like minimally disturbed, like bothered a little bit. I mean, he was a great builder, but he was also a great tyrant. I mean, he was despicably despicably ruthless and violent. He killed many members of his court, even members of his own family, to ensure that he maintained absolute power. So this is a man who's more than just a little bit bothered, a little bit troubled at the news of a rival king in Israel. In fact, our text doesn't cover this, but the visit from the wise men leads to Herod ordering the execution of all the baby boys two years and younger in the whole region. So professor and pastor, Dan Doriani, says this, Herod's violent response makes sense in one way, but not in another If the Magi are wrong about the prophecy, why bother with the child? If they're right about the prophecy, why attempt to resist it? Does he think he can thwart God's purposes? Herod's actions remind us that rebellion against God is irrational. It's folly to fight God. But sin makes people foolish you know hostility against god that's that's one possible response to christ even today however ultimately rebellion against god it's folly it's irrational it's folly to fight against god but but sin makes makes people foolish sin darkens our understanding certainly what we see with herod but look again at verse 3 when herod the king heard this he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. The people knew what Herod was like. And they weren't excited about the king being troubled. You know, as one pastor put it, whenever Herod's throne shook, Jerusalem shuddered in the aftershock. People terrified of what the king would do. As I've already said, he's going to do something very, very terrible. He learned of the wise men from the east being in Jerusalem and asking around about a baby boy, who had been born king of the Jews. So you know what Herod does? He begins to scheme and begins to plot. And he gathers the Jewish religious and political leaders together. Try to figure out, okay, what they've heard and what's going on. And so look at verse four. Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, Herod, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So he gets them all together and says, okay guys, I'm guessing you guys have heard what I've heard about this group of, of wise men from the east. They've come. They're asking questions about, about the birth of the Christ, of the Messiah, of the King of the Jews. So tell me, if there was such a Christ to be born, where would he be born? Where would I find him? And, and I, I imagine, okay, I'm, I'm reading into the text, I imagine the chief priests and the scribes kind of huddling up and saying, okay guys, listen, we've got to be unified in this. We've got no idea how he's gonna respond. And we need to be correct in this. And so, the answer is Bethlehem, right? I mean, isn't is, that's what Micah said? Micah said it was Bethlehem. Yes, it's definitely Bethlehem. Okay, are you sure? Yes, I'm positive, okay. We can't get this wrong, are you guys ready? Okay, they come out, we see verses five and six. They told Herod, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and then they paraphrase from Micah 5.2. And you, O Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They give the answer. And I want you to notice that as we go through the text, this is all we hear about the chief priests and the scribes. They, they don't go in, to Bethlehem themselves to check this out. They give the answer, and they go about their day. I mean, think about this. These are the Jewish religious leaders. Many of these people were professional Bible scholars and teachers. They immediately knew the answer was Micah 5-2, the Messiah, is to be born in Bethlehem. And yet they did not seem to care about this supposed miraculous star and this Christ child. You know, why would they not care? Are they too busy with other things? Or was this just utter apathy and indifference? I mean, think about the contrast between these wise men, pagan wise men from the east who, who had traveled hundreds if not thousands of miles over field and fountain, moor and mountain. But these priests and scribes would not even go just a few miles down the road to check this out. The, the indifference and apathy is very, very sad. And it ought to be a sobering reminder for us that, that merely knowing the Scriptures is not enough. Right? We can have the right answers memorized in our heads and still not love Christ with our hearts. Right? We can know the Christmas story by heart and yet miss the, the Christ of Christmas. I mean, it's very wonderful. It's a wonderful thing to have the right answers in our heads. May we always keep learning and keep seeking to have more and more right answers in our heads, but may we also seek to have hearts that are full of love for Christ, his word, and his church. And then we see in the story that that Herod, that that lying scoundrel, he keeps scheming and he comes up with a plan. Look at verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So he invites the the magi, the wise men, to a secret meeting. And he wants to know from them, okay, when did you guys first see the star? You know what he's doing, right? He's getting his timeline set because he's going to have all those baby boys who were two years and younger murdered. But then we read in verse 8, and he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So I imagine it going something like this. Here it calls this secret meeting. He says, "Okay, I've heard you guys are looking for someone. Is that true? And the wise men say, yes, yeah, we're scholars from the east and we've come a long way because a while back we saw this unusual star in the sky, which we believe is a symbol communicating a sign telling us that, that there's been born among the Jews a new king. And it's our understanding that this king is no ordinary king. I mean, no offense, King Herod, but our understanding is that this king's kingdom is going to be an everlasting kingdom. Then Herod looks at them and lies to them and says, well, wonderful. This is exciting news. As soon as I heard you were in town, I got excited and I got my guys together. And they assured me that the only place that such a king could be born is Bethlehem. And it's not that far down the road. Just you guys go look and see. And whenever you find this new, wonderful king, just come back and let me know. Let me know how he's doing. Let me know where he is. I may go and see him and worship him myself. But then we see verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. So notice this, so say they, they saw the star and they started traveling towards Israel and they go to Jerusalem. And then apparently they don't see the star and they're asking around, okay, where, where would the king of the Jews be born? And then they're given revelation from God's word from Micah 5.2, it's going to be in Bethlehem. And then as soon as they begin to follow that revelation from God's word, then they see the star, it reappears. And it leads the the wise men to the house where the Christ child was. And then we read in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Okay, now think about that, that sentence. There's a whole lot of joy in that sentence. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, the text just piles superlative upon superlative upon superlative to try to communicate to us this exhilaration that the wise men felt as they saw the star yet again. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. I mean, think about that. When was the last time you had that much joy? When was the last time you rejoiced exceedingly with great joy? Now, doesn't that sound absolutely wonderful? Wonderful. The, the exhilaration, the anticipation, these, these wise men, they've traveled so far, weeks, months, and now they see this star and they're just a few, few miles away, hours away, almost there. It sounds a lot like that anticipation, that excitement that, that children have on Christmas Eve, right, waiting for Christmas morning, trusting there's gonna be something wonderful, waiting under the tree for them. Now look at how the passage ends in verses 11 and 12. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So notice that Mary, Joseph, Jesus, they're not in the manger anymore, right? They're now in a house. Remember, this is is weeks or months, maybe even a year after the birth. They're now settled into a house. And notice the the contrast between the other characters in the story and these wise men. How they responded to to the news of of the birth of the king of the Jews, Right, Herod responds to hostility at the possibility of Jesus' birth. The chief priests and the scribes, it seems that they almost couldn't care less. They respond with indifference, matter-of-factly, with apathy. But notice the wise men. They respond with worship, with worship. I mean, we don't know all that they knew. We don't know all that they knew about Jesus, but look at the text, friends. I mean, they, they knew enough. They knew enough to leave their home, to set out on this very difficult and dangerous journey, to take all the risk that that journey would require. They, they knew enough to risk an encounter with Herod. They knew enough to follow the star. They knew enough to, to follow the Old Testament promises found in God's word about the birthplace of the Messiah. And now we see they knew enough to fall down their faces and worship. I mean, we don't know what all they knew and what all was explained to them by Mary and Joseph, but this certainly looks to me like true heartfelt worship. I mean, they fall down, they prostrate at the Christ child's feet, and, and they worship him. And so think about that. I mean, what, what an encouragement this true story of the wise men is meant to be to you, dear Christian. It's meant to be to us. I mean, these men are an example that, that, to us that if, if we seek to find Jesus, if we seek to find Jesus, to worship him, if we seek to, to know him more, to worship him with all of our hearts, with all of our affections, with all of our being, what an encouragement that God is going to lead us to him. I mean, let this be an encouragement to you as you open up and read the scriptures for yourself this Christmas season. Desiring to to worship Jesus, to know him better, to love him more. Let this be an encouragement to you as you begin to pray this Christmas season. Let this be an encouragement for you as you begin to pray your prepare your hearts for, for corporate worship. I mean, may you and I, may we desire to know Christ better, to love him more, to follow him more faithfully, to worship him more fully. And notice, notice looking at verse 11, the text is very explicit. They they do not worship Mary. See, see that that would be wrong. That would be worshiping the wrong object, the wrong person. We don't know what these wise men know, but they know enough to direct their worship to Christ. Worship him, the text says. Sinclair Ferguson explains it this way, it has always been one of the hallmarks of coming to know Christ that those who do also want to kneel before him and worship him. This is what these wise men did. They searched for him, they found him. They bowed before him and they presented their gifts to him. They presented their gifts to him, gifts fit for a king. I mean, these are not gifts of of payment these are not gifts of obligation. These are not bargaining chips where they're hoping to, to give these gifts to this king and then in return get something back. These are gifts of honor and adoration. These are gifts of worship. These are gifts fit for a king. Now you may be wondering, okay well Richard, are there some, is there some deeper significance to be found in these gifts? And the answer is, well maybe. I mean does gold symbolize royalty? Yeah. He's a king. Does frankincense symbolize the priesthood and worship? Well, maybe. I mean, Jesus is both a king and a priest. Does myrrh point to Jesus' eventual death? You know, Again, maybe. I mean, in John 19, Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are gonna bring myrrh and aloes to prepare Jesus' body for burial. And Jesus was, in fact, born to, to live and suffer and bleed and die and rise from the grave for our salvation. I think it's also possible that these gifts are simply the best gifts the wives men had to offer. Gifts fit for a king. But I think the greater point here is that Jesus is, who Matthew's been telling us for the last two chapters, who he is, he's the long awaited Messiah king. He's the long awaited savior in the line of David. He's the true king of the Jews. He's the fulfillment of this promise in 2 Samuel 7. He, he's the son of Abraham. He's the fulfillment of the promise in Genesis 12:3. That whenever God told Abram, In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed, that was ultimately about Christ. That he, he's the son of the virgin in fulfillment of the Isaiah 7:14 promise that we saw last week. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus is the King of the Jews. And he's the Savior of the world. The Savior of the world. You see, we've been studying the the first couple of chapters in the book of Matthew, this Advent. But I want you to think. Think about how Matthew ends. What do you know about the ending of Matthew in Matthew 28? More specifically, Matthew 28, verses 18 to 20. Right, known as the Great Commission. Where Jesus, the king of the Jews, the savior of the world, sends out his church to make disciples of all nations. Listen to what we read. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." See, he's the king of the Jews and the savior of the world, and he sends out his church to make disciples of all nations. But think about what do we have in this scene in Matthew 2, in our text? What we have is the nations have come to him. The nations have come and bow down and worship Jesus the king, which is the fulfillment of other promises we find throughout the Old Testament. Promises that we like in Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 6. And if you came to handle the Messiah this past week, you may recognize some of this Old Testament promise about the coming Messiah. See, in Isaiah 60, verses 1 to 6, we read, "'Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising.'" Lift up your eyes all around and see, they all gather together, they, can, they come to you. Your sons shall come from afar, and your daughters shall be carried at, on the hip, and you shall see and be radiant, and your heart shall thrill and exalt, because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephath. All those from Sheba shall come. And notice what it says. And they shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. You see what that means? That this scene in Matthew 2 is just the beginning. That Jesus will give the church the great commission. And we know that this, this gathering of the nations there falling on their face, worshiping the king in Matthew 2, is, is, it ultimately leads to where all of human history is leading. And it's that scene that we see in Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10. This scene of the heavenly throne room, where John tells us, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. See, Jesus is the Savior of the world. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, this Christmas, may we join the wise men in rejoicing exceedingly with great joy as we fall down and worship the King as individuals, as families, as a church. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the Messiah, the Son of David. The son of Abraham, the king of Israel, the king of kings, and Lord of lords, all nations will come and bow down before you. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. We do not come to you to get things and stuff from you. Rather, we come to you for you, for yourself to know you, to love you, to worship and adore you. You are our greatest treasure. You are the desire of the nations. And may you be the desire of our hearts today, this Christmas, and for all eternity. We ask this in Christ's name.